the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode 578, for Sunday, November 8th, 2015. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show you send in your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found. We answer your questions. We let you get your geek on for the week. Some people say we are like car talk for Apple fans. And I think that's an excellent description. Sponsors for this episode include Bombic Software at bombic.com slash MGG, where you can still save 10% or again, I should say, save 10% on their awesome carbon copy cloner. We'll talk more about that shortly. Gazelle.com, where you can actually get cash for your old Apple devices and Barebones Software at barebones.com, the home of the award-winning and ever-excellent BB Edit. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John F. Braun. How you doing, John F. Braun? Yeah. Just, yeah. That's it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. That's fair. It says it all. It does. It does. Uh, you know, uh, let's, let's dive right in because I think we've got some interesting stuff. We're actually going to try and do some cool stuff found at the end, uh, today. It's cool stuff found from you folks that you've sent in. So we'll see, we'll see how much of that we get to, you know, you know how it goes. Uh, but let's talk about the Apple TV oh, and we'll, boy. we'll do it by manner of questions, but I think then we'll sort of let that, uh, for a little while, at least devolve into, into perhaps a looser discussion. That's, that's less guided by these questions, but this is a good way to, <laughs> to get into this. So, uh, uh, listener, John writes, I asked about, uh, Synology and Plex, uh, a while back on the Apple TV and with iTunes, uh, you encouraged me to set up Plex on the Synology to prepare for Apple TV. Two days later, of course, it was all set. I have 3000 DVD movies that I have ripped and many TV programs ripped as well set up on the Synology with Plex. But I cannot get any of it on my iPhone or iPad and now cannot get any of it on my Apple TV. On Monday, I got my new Apple TV. I got it set up and found that there was, of course, the Plex app. Uh, I installed it. I did all the sign-in and stuff and then went to play a movie. The Apple TV Plex app said Plex on your disk station needs an update. Everything is up to date according to the disk station. Plex says to download the update, but I'm not sure how to apply it. Okay, and, and this is this is a common thing. It's, it's unfortunate and it's not perfect. Uh, it takes a little while for updates from software vendors to get pushed into the Synology store. Not dissimilar, frankly, to the process that we go through with Apple's App Store. Synology likes to vet the update, make sure it works on all manner of their things. Um, as, you'll, as you'll find out as I answer this question, you need the right build of the app that you're talking about for your Synology in order, you know, for your specific Synology, some run ARM processors, some run Intel processors, some, right. I mean, they're all over the map. So you go to um, plex.tv slash downloads and click on NAS NAS. And from there, Synology will be the first one, but, but they have all of them. They've got Drobo and they've got ready NAS and all of that stuff. 
And then you have to pick your Synology based on your processor. Uh, I know that John happens to have an 1815 plus, which is what I run here. And that runs an Intel processor. And so you choose Intel and you download it. And then inside the Synology, you just do a manual install inside of package center. It will be smart enough to upgrade your existing package and, and then you're good to go. So Plex on the Apple TV, I've been running it. Uh, I had to do the same manual install that, that I just talked about here. It works amazingly well. Uh, it, it's, it's brilliant, but it required because of some of the things that they did in the Plex app for the TV, it required an update to the, the server app. Uh, and you would need that if it was on your Mac. So Plex, for those of you that don't know, is a piece of software that is both a client and a server to serve your media. Uh, it can serve movies, which is what we're talking about here, but it can also serve your music and your photos. And it's really easy. You just point it at a library, you know, a folder. It's smart enough to sort of traverse through the folder, pulls all the movie data out, goes on the internet and looks up all the metadata. So you've got, you know, you're, you've got a movie, it's going to find all the actors. It's going to find the poster art for it. And sometimes it's going to get it wrong, but by, by and large, I would say for me, 95% of the time it gets it right. Maybe even more, maybe 99 uh, but you can edit it if it if it gets it wrong and, and pull different data. Uh, and then you get to go through and, and you can look at your movies and see whether you've watched them and sync to, to your devices. And, and this software is fantastic. It's available for free. Uh, you can sign up for a Plex Pass, which has either a yearly or lifetime fee. And it's inexpensive. Uh, and, and you get some additional features uh, like like offline syncing and, and things like that. So uh, Plex is a perfect companion for the new apple tv because if you've if you haven't if you've got everything every movie you've ever uh used and bought and all of that stuff if it's all in itunes then you're fine you know you you're in the apple ecosystem the apple tv even the old apple tv work great with it but if you're someone who has like ripped movies and stored them in a different library and and gotten them from various different sources then you're not storing everything in itunes and you need something else. And Plex is that something else. Synology actually on the, on the disk station has their own video station app uh, that is also that something else, but Plex is more universal because you can run it on a Mac. You can run it on anything. You don't, you know, it doesn't matter what your hardware is. And it's so much better to have that access to that on the Apple TV. Again, if you're someone who's been managing your movie, movie library like me outside of iTunes, having Plex on the Apple TV made me realize that I'm a moron. Uh, and, and I'm a moron because I never went and bought a Roku box or anything else that had for years has had direct access to Plex. Um, I've lived in Apple's e ecosystem. I've had, I've had a TiVo, which recently actually got Plex access inside it. Uh, and then I've, of course I've had, you know, Apple's Apple TVs, but, um, it's crazy. So that's, um, that's me, you know, that's, uh. I like it. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, Plex doesn't yet tie into Apple's universal search, but that's only because Apple hasn't opened up the API, but uh, I'm sure it will. So, you know, I should have, uh, I should have known. I should have just gotten, I should have gotten a Roku box years and years ago because they've been able to do this forever. They've had, you know, quote unquote apps, but that's how it goes. What do you think, Mr. Braun? I never tried either of the, I, 
I don't Plex and I don't Roku. I don't do either. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, no, I really like the uh, the video station because that's uh, that's the extent of the streaming sharing that I do. And I have no doubt that Synology is working on a video station app or a DS video app for Apple TV. So that would work in the, in the same way as Plex. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, um, you know, the new, so, um, the new Apple TV, in fact, let's, let's do Anthony's question. I think that'll probably lead us into, into an interesting discussion here. Uh, Anthony says, well, here's what Anthony says. Hey, Dave, John, and Pilot Pete, this is Anthony from the Bronx, otherwise known as Mac Tech Freak in the chat room. I have not really a troubleshooting question, but just a curiosity question, maybe to strike up some combo. I've played around with the new Apple TV. I've seen the remote, and it does all these funky, nice things. My question is, why couldn't they just release an app, Apple, that would allow my iPhone to do the very same exact things? Why couldn't I just talk into my phone with Siri and have her do the the stuff to the Apple TV? And we already have the remote app that almost acts the same way as the touch remote. So I'm just, just a little curious on why an extra $79 remote, you know, that breaks is needed when we have these iPhones that are so much nicer. Well, you can cut me off here. And, and I will. Thanks, Anthony. Yeah. Yeah. There was, yeah. I mean, you make an... He's, Anthony makes an excellent point, right? It, this is, there's some weird things going on with the Apple TV. Um, and I think Apple felt like they had to get it out before the holiday season this year. And so it feels like a product that was a little bit rushed to market. Uh, I know we've been waiting for it for years. We've been hearing about it for years, but some of these things that like the fact that the remote app on the iPhone isn't ready. You you can't like you have to type in passwords all the time, right? Because now, like on iOS, you're adding apps to this device and you want to I mean, forget about the password. You want to search for an app. You can't mm-hmm. you know, you can't you can't type on a keyboard to do that. The old Apple TV, your Apple TV, John, the Gen 3 one supports Bluetooth keyboards. And that means that you can even pair up. Uh, you know, all kinds of things with it. Well, not this one. So yet. All right. So the remote app doesn't work with the new Apple TV, the remote app giving you access to, as you suggested, things like the keyboard. Yep. <laughs> or a virtual keyboard on your iOS device. Right. Right. Um, yeah, that, that was, and you I can't heard more than Bluetooth. one person complain about that. It's like, it has Bluetooth as far as I can tell. Yes. Why doesn't it see? So for whatever stupid reason, they're intentionally blocking keyboard devices well it's i don't think it's intentionally blocking does it not see any other bluetooth device correct bluetooth bluetooth support has yet to be fully realized on that device that's right um it's just you know and it's frustrating like like i said searching for an app and then trying to type your password in i mean that's Mm -hmm. forget it why do i want to do this with a you know swipey swipey on the remote it's crazy (laughs) oh the remote boy that was a great idea I've heard more than one person. So, so I saw people shaking their fists at the remote. Someone, I guess, posted a picture saying, hey, I dropped it and it broke. And then someone else in my feed said, well, then don't drop it, dummy. And it's like, but 
it didn't used to break when you dropped it. <laughs> right. It's a remote. I mean, this thing's going to be dropped. You're going to throw it around the room. It's a, it's a remote, you know, and, and, and the remote, um, it, it, so let's be, let's it, put something breakable in, yeah. in a tiny little device that you're going <laughs> to, it's crazy. <laughs> and, and the thing about the remote is it feels the same in either orientation. So I, there have been many, many times when I've grabbed the remote and tried like swiping or even just doing navigation, the buttons are smack dab in the middle kind of uh, horizontally, if you will, the way you're holding it. Nice. And so you, you just, there's no physical obvious. I mean, if, if you really learn the nuances of, okay, the glass is down here, the not glass is up here. Got it. I'll turn it around, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but, other there's no obvious like there's no like little thumb catch or or finger catch underneath mm-hmm. it that you're like oh yep I, it's right where it's supposed to be in my hand and I'm good to go no none of that um, nice it's like um it's like that apple the the round apple mouse exactly Let, let's make an input device that gives you absolutely no information as to what its orientation is yes that's right yeah no <laughs> physical cues yeah and that's what it is yeah with this one it you know you're like oh how come it doesn't oh got it you know and how it works so. It, I get what Apple's doing. I'm, I'm still actually, despite my, uh, all my comments that I've made thus far, I'm still quite bullish on the concept of this thing. I, I really am. I mean, having apps, really? yeah, having apps in the living room is awesome. The ability for third parties to just put this stuff out there. Apple's app ecosystem has been proven to be fantastic. So I, I really think that, that there's, there's a lot to be done here, but, Apple didn't enter this. Mar- Apple has, I mean, to be fair, Apple's never and en- never entered a market where they're actually the first person doing something right. Um, that that's not Apple's MO. They, they come into markets and feel like, okay, we're going to come in when we can do it better than what the other people are doing. Um, what Apple's currently offering is arguably not better. Uh, not, as a not as a holistic experience there's parts of it that are better the app the way the app store works much better right you know the the siri thing where it works much better but in a general sense like if you say i want something to put in my living room so that by thanksgiving day which is you know two weeks away or whatever here in the u.s uh everything is going to be awesome and it's going to be easy to use and everybody's going to understand it it's like yeah the apple thing you're probably going to be a little frustrated with it right now but a year from now, we'll probably be singing a different tune because it's Apple and, and, you know, they evolve these things. They iterate they'll, they'll, I have faith in, in this particular product from them just based on their track record. But, you know, I mean, anything could happen. <laughs> they could totally ignore it, but I don't think they're going to. So, yeah. It's, so, you, so you're going to get a case for your, uh, Apple TV remote. Well, so here's an interesting thing, right? <laughs> we, we use the harmony ultimate, one harmony ultimate home remote. We use the one with a, there's a a base, right? And so for the most part, we don't even use the new Apple remote, Uh, but we need to have it around because Siri only works with the remote. Um, And you can only get to like on, on the Apple TV, just like on your iOS thing, you can hit what, what they call the home button. It has a little picture of a TV, but if you double tap that home button fast enough, you can get to an app switcher where you can quit apps. And sometimes you need to do that for troubleshooting or whatever. Um, my harmony remote is infrared to the Apple TV. Whereas the Apple TV remote is Wi-Fi. I can't tap the home button fast enough via infrared to get that 
app swipe switcher thing to come up. So, uh, so the, the, the Apple remote's necessary. Uh, it'll become more necessary as things like Plex support this, the, uh, Siri search, right. You know, the, the universal voice search and all of that stuff. So, uh, you know, it'll, it'll, yeah, we might have to get a case for it, I guess. I mean, we haven't broken it yet, uh, but you know, we've only had it. Well, we've had it for a while, but you know, I had one of those dev versions, John. So I got my Apple TV for a dollar, but there was a, there was a catch to that dollar. It cost me an extra $10 last, last week, you know, I, um, the developer version didn't have the ability to update over the air to the release version. And you had to do it mm. with, with a USB C cable. So, uh, so I, I had to, I had to buy a USB C cable cause I didn't have one. Now this is not a complaint. I mean, I, I realized I got an Apple TV for a dollar plus $10. So 11 bucks for an Apple TV and a, and a lightning cable came with the Apple TV to charge the remote, but not a USB C cable. So I had to get one of those to, to manually load the firmware on. The hard, the, the worst part about it is they're just hard to find USB A to USB C. There's not a lot of them around, but uh, but I got one from Amazon for ten bucks, so it's all good. And now I'm now I can see the App Store and obviously download all these apps. So it's all quite. Happy. You know, that made me think. Though I don't think you can do this unless you uh, hack your Apple TV. But when I saw these people saying, "Hey, I can't," there there appears to be no way to get a keyboard bonded with my Apple TV. I'm like. Well, could you plug in a keyboard into the USB port? And I think the reason you cannot is that the Apple TV looks like an endpoint, not a hub. So I think in theory, it may be possible. Like I said, I think you can hack a USB driver and make it so that it then understands what a keyboard is. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, But yeah. out of the box, but again, because the class of device it is, this normally won't work. But I found at least one site that said, oh, yeah, you got to download this uh, okay. kernel extension. And then you should be able to plug a wired keyboard into the Apple TV. I'm like, cool. Huh? That's That is cool. Yeah. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, mine has a micro, I think it's micro USB, right? The old ones did. That's right. And, uh, and everybody, all the developers thought it was kind of weird that Apple didn't ship the device with, um, with an Apple, you know, with a USB-C cable. But here's the thing. I don't think Apple makes their own USB-C cable. I think, you know, they sell them in the store, but they've got, you know, it's from like Belkin and and other third-party vendors. So I don't think Apple makes one, which is probably why they didn't bake one in the box. Now, I did get a little geeky with this, though, John, and I thought I found another way to to skin this particular cat, if you don't mind the analogy. Uh, I thought, well... Here's the thing, Not right? Because nice. I would tell it, go update over the air, and it would error out. It would say, oh, I, I can't, you know, it, I, I can't contact the update server. And I thought, okay, well, wait a minute. If I find someone that has, you know, an Apple TV they bought from the, you know, from, like, from, from the store retail, and I have them sniff their packets and tell me what update server the release version is looking at, maybe I can hack my local DNS to point my existing Apple TV, you know, the developer Apple TV at the correct update server. And maybe I can force this update in. So um, using Dubuki, right? A tool that, uh, that, we've, that we've talked about on the show here before, uh, le- which lets you sniff the network packets of other devices on your local network. It's actually pretty cool. Uh, I talked to Adam Christensen, right? Of MacCast. And he sniffed his traffic and he told me exactly what file 
it was looking for. It was very, very trivial to, uh, to do that. And then uh, I went and sniffed mine and it was looking for exactly the same file. So I was thwarted there. It, uh, evidently, Apple changed the format of the XML file that they use to tell an Apple TV when there's an update available. And so that was the problem is the, um, the you know, the, the file couldn't work with both the developer and the, the release firmware. So I had to actually wait for my cable to arrive. So there you go. That's that. But it was fun to use Dabuki to do it. They're my favorite. Mm-hmm. I like it. Well, that and Wireshark. I still fire up Wireshark every now and then. But Wireshark can't do what Dabuki does, right? It can't sniff the packets of another device. It can only see... Yeah, the, they, they do the, the hokey bit. They do... Uh, Promiscuous Yeah, they got a secret sauce. Okay. okay. Yeah, and some other, other stuff. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, that's good, I guess. All right. Uh, any other questions on the Apple TV, John? Anything before we move on to Terry? I'm just concerned what the neighbors would think if they hear me yelling at my TV all the time. <laughs> it It is pretty cool. Uh, you know, the way when it works, it, it it's cool. It, but it is a weird interface to get used to, like scrubbing back and forth in the movie with a slider. I don't know. It, I think I'll feel better about it when there's an app for the iPhone so that everybody in the family can kind of do it without having to pass this remote around. I think, I think I'll feel better about it. We'll see. We'll keep you posted. All right. Moving on to Terry. Uh, she says about a year ago, a friend purchased a 15 inch MacBook pro retina with 256 gig SSD only to discover that her photo library was over 300 gigs. She moved it to an external drive and, with the assistance of someone broke it into several separate photo libraries. Then she did the Yosemite update and got the new photos app. The libraries on the external hard drive are still iPhoto libraries. When I had her hold down the option key while opening photos and then select one of the existing libraries on the external hard drive, it did the whole preparing library thing, uh, which it appeared to complete. But when it was done, we didn't see a single photo only the screen that prompts the user to import photos by dragging them in or connecting a camera. Ditto every other library on the external drive. Currently, she has a small library stored locally in the location that the Mac really likes, Home Pictures, which has successfully migrated over. The goal is for her to be able to use photos to organize, edit, and share. I explained that I think the issue is that photos can't find a completed, uh, actually migrated iPhoto library, even though it told us it had successfully prepared them. Uh, so let's talk about this when photos, I, I think I know the problem and I think it's the format of the external, um, the external drive. When photos migrates an iPhoto library in what it does is it goes and creates what are called a bunch of hard links. Uh, it leaves the old iPhoto library mostly intact. It flags it and says, I've already migrated you. But other than that, the, the pictures all remain there. And then the pictures also remain in your photos library. But there's only one copy of the pictures. Uh, that means if you go and delete your old iPhoto library, you'll still have the pictures uh, as long as you see them in your photos library. And in, in Terry's friend's case, that's that's not going to happen. And I think it's because the external drive isn't Mac OS 10 formatted or not HFS plus formatted, which is Mac OS 10's preferred format. I think it's a fat formatted or Windows formatted drive as most external drives are. And in most cases, it doesn't matter which format it is. But in this case, I really believe that it does. Uh, this is the reason that 
you can't migrate an iPhoto to fo- library, iPhoto library to photos when you're on uh, a, a, a NAS drive, right? It, it's all of the same stuff. It's got to be on a Mac formatted volume in order for that migration to work, or at least that's been my experience with it. So that's the first thing I'd check is that. And, uh, and that, I think you're going to find that, that to be the, uh, that to be the issue. Uh, I have some other thoughts on this, John, but I, I wanted to get your thoughts before I moved on. To me, yes, that is the primary reason that photos, let's be honest, it's lying to you. I mean, it says preparing library, but is it really? I don't think so. Right, right. <laughs> A good way to check would be to get info on the newly created photos, you know, the the, the end of migration photos library. And it should be the same size. Um, I've got Brian Monroe in the chat room. But I'm going to address this quickly, uh, ranting about how we need to show the sidebar in photos. I agree. I like the sidebar in photos, but I don't think that's going to uh, show pictures that aren't there. Uh, if it's telling you there aren't pictures and you have to connect a camera, and I don't think it's going to. I don't think it's going to be there. But if you go to the view menu and choose show sidebar, uh, you, you get a whole lot more options. You get to see your your. Um, your you know all your all your albums and all of that stuff that came over but uh but in this case i don't think that's the uh i don't think that's the solution and i I think doing a get info on it on your external drive will confirm that so yeah it's um you've got to move them to a mac formatted drive at least to do the migration and that's what i did for mine i moved it from the nas to an externally connected drive because i didn't have enough room on my internal and uh did the migration and then copied it back to the NAS and everything has worked fine. Now things get a little more interesting, John, because uh, fat cat software, which made and makes iPhoto library manager also now makes power photos and power photos is um, an app that, uh, that allows you to manage your photos library as opposed to your iPhoto library. Power Photos this week now has the ability to manage multiple photos libraries. So in your friend's case, where you've got these libraries that are bunched up, Power Photos is going to be able to migrate multiple iPhoto libraries into photos. They've got a migration assistant right inside there. So Power Photos might be your friend's magic answer. And I'm really stoked that, uh, that the folks at Fat Cat are working on this. So. We'll put a link in the in the show notes to a comparison that shows you the differences between Power Photos and iPhoto Library Manager. But uh, but this migration assistant again, this is not Apple's migration assistant. This is you know one specifically for photos that perhaps Apple should have built, but has not, and will allow you to do this. So very cool, and you can find duplicates with it. All of this great stuff. So I think I think that's going to be your solution, Terry. Hey, were you a fan of uh, iPhoto Library Manager? Have you used Power Photos, John? No, I have not. Okay. No, I've always always kept all my stuff in a in a single uh yeah, sometimes large library. Yeah, as far as people that know what they're doing when it comes to uh managing your photo libraries on the Mac, I would say that uh these guys know what they're doing. I will I will circle back here because it's possible Brian Monroe is right on this. Uh it's at least worth the tip. As I said, the view show sidebar thing, he is convinced 
that uh, that the all photos album is where their data is stored, regardless of drive format. So perhaps uh, that's where it's, it is, and it's certainly worth a look, Terry. After you've done your migration, so um, so be sure to check that out. And Brian Monroe, thank you. Uh, and that's in our chat room here at the stream, macgeekcab.com slash stream. And if you want to join us on usually Sunday mornings, Eastern time when we record, we would love to have you because it helps to have tips like this in real time for all of you. That way you don't have to wait a week to hear what, uh, what the rest of the community thinks. And many times the rest of the community helps put us on the right track. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What's next, John, you want to, uh, well, photos, you know, I, I noticed something. I just thought I'd mention it yeah. to you the other day. You know, I was, I was telling you that uh, something was taking up quite a bit of processor on my MacBook Pro, and I think I know what it is now. Um, so I was looking, and every now and then I'd see recently changed files on my transporter. And it seemed to be files that were, well, you can open them. Um, but they were in my photos library. And I'm like, well, I'm not running photos. What, what, what is happening here? Apparently there's a little background uh, process called photos agent that will uh, secretly update content of that. I think your, your photo stream and stuff, but um, so photos is, is doing some <laughs> interesting stuff in the background that I don't think Apple's other programs were doing. No, it, I You're right. I agree with you. It, it um, it's very active in the background and this is very more obvious on an older Mac. You know, we, like I said, or mentioned before, we've got some 2007 vintage and 2008 vintage iMacs in the house, uh, and it uses a lot of CPU on them at seemingly random times. I know it's not random, but you know, it's when it decides it needs to rebuild the faces library and and do other sorts of indexing. It's like, yeah, wait, what's this other process doing here? So, yeah, yes, yes. Anyway. That's where we're at. Uh, you know what I want to do, John, is I want to take a moment and tell everyone about our three sponsors for today. That work for you? Works for me. All right. Our first sponsor today is Bombic Software at bombic.com slash MGG. That's B-O-M-B-I-C-H dot com slash MGG, where coupon code MGG10 off saves you 10% off of Carbon Copy Cloner, one of my favorite pieces of backup software for the Mac. This is software that I literally use every single day. Carbon Copy Cloner has been creating bootable Mac backups since 2002. It will backup and restore Apple's recovery volume, which is a huge thing. Now, everything that Carbon Copy Cloner does is non-proprietary. What that means is you don't need Carbon Copy Cloner to restore from the backup. So if you've got a drive that you've backed up to you just take that drive. If it's a bootable backup, guess what? It boots another Mac. You don't need anything special. If it's just got data on it, uh, then you can just read that data. It's all good. Carbon Copy Cloner also has a safety net. Normally, when you do a clone, if you delete a file one day, when that drive gets cloned, it's going to delete that file from the clone because that's the point, making it a copy. Well, Carbon Copy Cloner deletes it, but it puts it in the safety net just in case you want that file out again. You can set the size of the safety net so it doesn't overrun your drive and everything is good. Carbon copy cloner backups can be scheduled. That's what I do every day. Uh, I have two, one that backs up my iTunes library to my Synology disk station. The other that clones my bootable hard drive so that I'm safe and good to go. Both of those are linked together so that 
one fires right after the other. I don't even have to think about it. I can get an email notification when it succeeds or when it fails or both. Fantastic. Normally, a household license, which you can use on all your computers, is $39.99. Coupon code MGG10OFF, which is available at bombic.com slash MGG, saves you 10%, gets you down to $35.99. There is a free trial available. I highly encourage you to go check it out. Bombic.com slash MGG. Go check it out today. And our thanks to Bombic Software for sponsoring this episode. Our second sponsor is BB Edit from Barebones Software at barebones.com. BB Edit, again, something I use every day for all kinds of things. But here's the thing. Lots of people use BB Edit and they've got testimonials on their site about what these people used. Some of the coolest things. Paul Joannidis says uh, his favorite feature is the way BB Edit makes HTML show up in different colors. When you load a file, it doesn't change the text file, but it displays the file in whatever language you're using. HTML could be JavaScript, could be all kinds of different stuff. Daniel Jalkett, a good friend of the show, his favorite feature is the file comparison feature. One of my favorites too, BB Edit lets you see the differences between two files and they've got a beautiful display to show that to you. You got to check it out. James Thompson, another friend of the show, software developer, uh, makes pcalc his favorite feature is the find and replace dialogue not only can you find and replace in one document you can do a multi-file find and replace it's outstanding dan frakes one of his favorite features bb edits apple scripts which you can use to clean up text all kinds of different things in fact bb edit exposes its text factories as automator actions too and that allows you to leverage the power of bb edit in your automator actions and in your Apple scripts, outstanding stuff. John Syracusa, he likes multi-file search, which I mentioned before, but he uses it with regular expressions. BB Edit plays well with other programs. It plays well with whatever you want to do. I use it just sometimes to count words in a document. You got to check this out. BB Edit at barebones.com. Download a free trial. I know you'll be coming back for more. Our thanks to Barebones for sponsoring this episode. You want to turn your iPhone into cash? Our sponsor, Gazelle, is the place to start. What you do is you go to gazelle.com and you tell them what kind of iPhone you have. You haven't told them who you are even yet. You tell them what kind of iPhone you have. They give you a price. You you tell them the condition. You tell them what model it is, how big it is. They give you a price. If you like the price, then you give them your name and address. Why? Because they're going to send you a box. No charge to you. You put your iPhone in the box, you ship it back to them, still no charge to you. They evaluate it, make sure what you sent them is what you said you were going to send them, and they send you money. Gazelle even pays cash for broken phones. Once you accept their online offer, Gazelle will honor it for 30 days. Check it out. Even if you're going to sell your phone off to a friend, check out the price from Gazelle first. Maybe you'll wind up selling to them in the end anyway. Gazelle has paid out over $200 million to its customers. They really know what they're doing. Their customer service is top notch. We hear it from you folks all the time. Your fellow listeners love this service. They just make it easy. And when you have a problem, they make the problem go away for you. Gazelle.com. You got to check it out. Cash for your iPhone fast and easy at gazelle.com. Make sure you tell them Matt Geekab sent you. They'll ask you in the checkout process. 
which is sort of a reverse checkout if you think about it, because they're paying you. It's awesome. Our thanks to Gazelle for sponsoring this episode. John, I think that means it's time to talk to Chuck and see if we can help him with his finder issues. I don't want to talk to Chuck. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. But we're going to have to. Ah, here we go. So, well, Chuck wrote in, but uh, I'll summarize what, what he also sent in. So he actually sent in a little video, which uh, really helped me. Oh, handy. I thought, figure out what the heck's going on. Um, so he says it's a head scratcher, 27 inch iMac latest, uh, 2014 model upgraded to El Capitan and the finder started crashing. Now, the first thing I'm like, well, what makes you think the finder is crashing? And then I looked at the video and I'm like, well, yeah, it looks like it to me basically just disappears and then comes back a few seconds later when he's playing with, uh, tabs. I don't know why, why tabs cause it. So I suggested a few things or a few things came to mind. One was, I, I remember this, speaking of Transporter, I spoke about it earlier, but at one point they actually had a tech support article, which uh, was for what I thought maybe was a related uh, you know, cause, in that um, they had a, a issue where your, your files may get out of sync, and basically what they, their article tells you to do is to uh, rebuild the DYLD cache, which uh, suffice to say is... Um, I think it's the dynamic loader, but basically it's, it's, it's code um, and it's in a cache and sometimes caches get corrupted. And so the suggestion is, well, rebuild this. You could also do it with Onyx, just setting somewhere in Onyx to rebuild this DYLD cache. Um, and the response was, well, that didn't do it. Huh? And then I thought, okay, well, let's see if, let's see if, it is a crash. Now, where would you look if you wanted to find a crash report? Well, what's a crash report? Well, the thing is, a lot of times, uh, mostly for developers, when software crashes, whatever operating system it is, it'll write some information somewhere, uh, usually on the disk, or you may see it on your screen, a bunch of gobbledygook. Uh, but I'm like, let's see if, if there is a finder crash report. And so I said, look in your home directory, library, logs, diagnostics reports. And see if their files in with crash. And he's like, yep, there's two of them <laughs> that occurred exactly when the finder crashed on me. And I'm like, oh, great. We'll send them along. And I looked at them and Dave, as far as I could tell, um, it was an error in the finder. It was actually a routine used to figure out where to draw things. I think it was like NS, uh, you know, coordinate update or something, you know, really low level. And it basically said, um, I crashed because you sent me some values that don't make sense. And I'm like, uh, but the, the error occurred in Finder. It wasn't like I, I didn't see any other, you know, uh, module or anything mentioned in the crash report. Right, was, right. Yeah, sometimes you'll see a, a plug-in or something else kind of re reference. Or like KEXT, last loaded. A lot of times that yep. that's what, I, when I see a, a kernel extension loaded or unloaded, to me that usually set, sets out some breadcrumbs as to what exactly was causing this. But in the case, it, it was the Finder. Yeah. So I'm concluding his finder file may be corrupt. So um, but no, there are a few other things that I suggested, but they, they, they didn't work either. But some things to try if you have finder problems, one could be to get rid of the finder plist file. Yeah. Is that stored? Which, is that one of those that's stored in the weird um, temp folder 
you know, the per user mm. folder or whatever it is, or is, is it Not just in preferences? Okay. All right. That's good. Uh, yeah. User library preferences and it's com.apple.finder.plist. Perfect. Then I said, well, you could start up in safe mode. Sometimes that rebuilds or clears out some cruft that, that may cause low level issues. That's a that, safe mode is a really good idea. Uh, I mean, I, again, you know, we're, we're sort of, I mean, we're, we're trying to help Chuck here, but we're also, you know, abstracting back to a general sense. And yeah, safe mode does a lot of different things that, that could solve this problem. If there's, like you said, if there's some cache or something that the finder is referencing, that's just corrupted safe mode likely will deal with it at the very least. It's a good way to test launch it in safe mode. See if the problem still happens, then launch in regular mode and see if it still happens, you know, and it might, it might've just fixed it. Yeah. I, I have had it fix, uh, fix things. Yeah. Many times. And whatever yeah. It cleans up. Yeah. Um, then I'm like, you know, then it was like hail Mary. It's like, ah. <laughs> I mean, one thing you could do, but it's <laughs> incredibly time consuming. Um, most processes or no, I think all processes, all programs, you can see what, um, what files and ports they're accessing. Cause my thought was, well, maybe the finder is, you know, dealing with a corrupt, uh, and then this is where I took a shot in the dark, maybe a corrupt font. I don't know. Sure. Maybe. Yeah. Oh, that's maybe. true. Oh yeah. Well, based on the error message that I got that, it, you know, it, it was having some problem with positioning things on the screen. I'm like, well, maybe. And if you go into activity monitor and CPU, and then you see the finder, if you double click on it, there'll then be a tab saying open files and ports. And if you click on that tab, you're going to get a boatload of all the things that the finder has open or is talking to. And maybe you will recognize one of them as something that is new or unexpected. I don't know. I was thinking fonts. There's also graphics and all sorts of teeny weeny little files in there. Any one of them could, could be the problem. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good idea. You know, that list, that open files and ports list, John is dynamically updated. It's a live list. So if you're, uh, you know, if the finder is, you can, you can kind of open that up and then open a folder and you'll see that the finder will go and like open these folders and access these things and all of that stuff. So you know, you can kind of watch and see what changes and what it tries to open before it, it punts. And maybe that gives you, you know, maybe that'll, that'll give you an indication that that open files and ports is a hugely valuable troubleshooting uh, tool. That's, that's kind of overlooked a lot, uh, but valuable, very valuable. And then here's the final. And uh, so I suggested a few things to do with uh, with fonts because I saw some font files loaded, and he said, "Man, nah, none of those." Are. But mainly, you can use FontBook. Uh, Apple gives you a program that lets you play with your fonts called FontBook. And one thing you can do inv- is validate the uh, integrity of your fonts. Um, then the last thing he said, which uh, you have more experience than I with this, Dave, because I only have one, whereas you have two. And what do you have two of? Well, you have two of many things, but monitors. And he said, well, you know, I have two monitors and I keep the finder on the second one. Could that have anything to do with it? And I'm like, uh, it could. I don't know. What, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, it depends. You know, I, I do have two monitors, John, but at, uh, here's where, you know, momentum and uh, my age and uh, simply in, in regard to how long I've been using computers is a is a negating factor. I have always had two monitors and I'm very used to the old way of doing things. Uh, whereas with, uh, 
I guess it was started with Yosemite, right? You have this option in in Yosemite. If you go to Mission Control, there's a checkbox, and it's on by default. Yosemite, and and then of course El Capitan uh, displays have separate spaces. I don't run that way. I turn that off uh, because having menu bars on both displays is just not what I'm used to. It's it's not necessarily bad. I just have a really, you know, I'm an efficiency freak. Right. And, and so I, I, I have my workflows that work for me and I've tried it the other way. I just like it this way. So I turn that off. I don't have this problem, but I don't do enough testing in displays have separate spaces mode turned on to have any, any real indication, but I can't imagine that if this were an issue with that, we would not have already heard about it. Right. So it, this is the first time we've really heard about this. So I don't think that the multi-monitor thing is the issue, but again, to test, you could just move your finder windows into <laughs> the other monitor and there you go, you know, see what happens. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, you know, we're just talking about troubleshooting here. So. <laughs> that was my thought too. Yeah. The, um, you know, kind of like uh, medical advice is okay. Well, don't do that then. Well, yeah, or at least you see, know, does doctor, it, it hurts when I do this. Okay, yeah. well, don't do that. Hey, don't do that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. So if it hurt, if it crashes, then yeah, put put the finder on the other screen. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least try it. I mean, I, you know, it, it shouldn't do that, but at least that would be in, it, like, okay, now we've got something to go on. We know do X and Y happens and you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. That's okay. Awesome. Here we go to get really geeky. Just, just so you, uh, yeah, check the box. This is what I saw. This is what I saw in the crash report. Terminating app due to uncaught exception, NS invalid argument exception, reason, NS layout constraint, constraint with item, colon, attribute, colon, related by, two item, oh my gosh. And then it says a, a multiplier of zero or a nil second item were, were detected, which basically means I think I saw a zero or I, I saw no data where I wanted data. So right. Yeah, bad math. I'm going to crash. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's not not current math. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have a I don't have I wish I had a magic answer for him. But, you know, for in, I mean, we've given Chuck a lot to go on. And, and, you know, as always, we try to kind of at least generalize somewhat so that there's valuable troubleshooting advice for every, everybody for when you run into some similar that problem. Was yeah. That was Michael. Oh, that was Michael. Argo. It's always Argo. Oh, yeah. Right. OK. Gotcha. <laughs> oh, uh, uh, let's move on to Kevin. Kevin, uh, Kevin actually has two questions. So we'll go, uh, uh, we'll start with email. He says, do you guys have recommendations on a personal email account provider? I would rather not go with Gmail. I have paid, I have a paid Google apps account for my business for the past year. I had been using VF email, uh, based in Wisconsin. The owner provides great personal service. Uh, a guy named Rick. It says he used the ZFS server and as a total privacy nut ran into some issue. He, he, he had a DDoS attack uh, happen. I'm not going to go through all of it, but any, any, any event he's looking for a new provider. He says he'd rather not go with Fastmail because he already has a Fastmail account for one of his other uh, things. He doesn't want to use iCloud because uh, there's no easy way to delete your account, which violates Kevin's own personal privacy policy, which is fine. Uh, he asked uh, if John, if you're still using Yahoo and if we had any ideas, uh, you know, Fastmail would be my choice. I've done a lot of research on this. We use Google for pretty much everything here, but there's 
parts of it that are frustrating, especially for this particular show. Uh, Google, we have mail come into our two email addresses, right? Feedback at MacGeekGab.com and premium at MacGeekGab.com. And those addresses are actually just what I would call forwards, right? And one of them, and, and it forwards to two people, John and me. Well, the way you set up forwards in Google uh, apps slash Google email is you create a group. And so those are groups. But the problem is groups are treated a little differently by Google's mail engine. And if too much email comes into a group from the internet, it actually starts bouncing that. And many of you have seen this and sent us notes saying, hey, you know that your, your you know, feedback at MacGeekGab.com is bouncing email. It's like, yeah, it happens sometimes. So I've been, I've been looking uh, and I've been looking for, for myself, actually, for other reasons as well. Uh, fast mail is, is, is probably the one that I pick. They, they seem to be very reliable. I've run my own email server. I ran, you know, we ran our own email server for a decade here. You do not want to run your own email server. Trust me on this, uh, unless that's all you want to do. And then you should do it. And, and then you should offer it as a service for other people because it's a real headache to manage it. It is a full-time job uh, staying on top of it. You can ignore it for a long time. And this was my mistake. And then one day there'll be some update that someone does to your, uh, you know, to your server or whatever. And, and it'll make your email server break. And then you'll realize you're the only person on the planet that actually understands all the moving parts that makes your email server work. And suddenly you've lost a Saturday and a Sunday trying to figure out if you'll ever get your email server back up and running. So don't do that. Use someone else and use someone that's actively managing it on a daily basis. It is a full-time job. So, uh, so fast mail is the one I would go with, but um, you know, there's others, John, again, you know, Kevin asked, you're still using Yahoo for some of your stuff. Yeah, so far I'm I'm happy with Yahoo. Yahoo gives you, uh, I think it's a terabyte for free. So you're probably not going to use that much ever. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny because this question came up in our, uh, I think in our Facebook group here, I think uh, it was Melissa asked this question. And um, I'm kind of in the same situation. She's like, but why do ISPs still offer POP or why don't they offer IMAP? And mine is one of them, Optimum Online. Last I checked, they still do pop. So you don't, and you convince me one day to, you know, stop that and, and, you know, do IMAP with somebody. And I, so basically I forward all my stuff from my, uh, you know, opt online to uh, Yahoo as, as well as many other accounts. And they actually, you know, allow you to do this. You identify the accounts that you'd like to put under your Yahoo email and it, it manages that for you. Hmm. Maybe I should um, move to Yahoo. Well, at least try them out. Yeah, you know, a lot of space. Uh, every every once in a in a blue moon, and nobody's perfect. But you right. know, I'll try to like copy between mailboxes, and I'll get a you know an error, but it describes it. It's like you know, IMAP error. I can't you know copy from this mailbox to this mailbox right now. Okay, I mean that that's you know that's going to happen. Yeah, yeah, but I haven't you know had it lose anything. No, it's 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 pretty reliable. They they make a really nice uh, iOS app. Um, uh, Yahoo Mail client, which I, I, re I really like actually. They give you useful suggestions when you run that. Huh. Like the last time I ran it, they were like, oh yeah, by the way, you know, um, you know, you can manage your other emails uh, with us. 
You know, they really want you to. They want you to. I'm not sure why. And do you, do you get unlimited storage with Yahoo? Yeah. Or is it well, fixed? A terabyte. I think it's a terabyte. Okay, so that's, I mean, yeah. Which okay. for email is, you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, dude, <laughs> pretty much infinite. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, you know, Yahoo, I think, because it's that same thing, you know, for Flickr, right? You've got your terabyte limit for your account. I, I'm not convinced that they actually are limiting anyone that hits that terabyte. I think it's, you know, it's unlimited, but instead of saying unlimited, they wanted to differentiate themselves. So they came out and said terabyte. That's my guess. Cause I don't, I don't think they're going to, I don't think they're going to bounce you. If you, you know, what do they care? I mean, if they're going to give you a terabyte, they'll give you more. No, I'm with you. And actually, um, you know, somebody brought that up that, uh, who was it? Microsoft, uh, changed the, uh, terms of their OneDrive, I think, and got some people upset. Okay. Like, well, yeah, the unlimited thing. Um, I think it was them, but, but I've heard lots of people doing it, but they're like, yeah, our unlimited thing isn't uh, really unlimited anymore. Oh, nice. <laughs> We're going to limit <laughs> your previous unlimited thing. And it's like, wait, that wasn't part of the deal. That's not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, but it's like Darth Vader. It's like, you know, uh, the, you know, he, he can change the deal. He's changing the deal. Yeah. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I just pray he doesn't change it further. Right. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, Kevin also asked, uh, I lost my wallet today and I'm ticked off. Dave, I know that you have recommended an iPhone case in the recent past that allows you to put three cards in it, like a license and two credit cards. Indeed. Uh, I think that's right up my alley. As long as it is not smooth, I want a case that has a grip and friendly texture. Uh, what have you tried lately? Well, uh, I'm currently using uh, the spec candy shell card case uh, on my iPhone uh, 6s plus. Uh, and it's, you know, it's the same case that works on the six plus. And I actually really like it, but it's, it's a spec case. So it, I feel like it's, it's grip friendly, but you might feel like it's smooth. I mean, it is a smooth thing. So you'd have to test that out, but, but it works quite well. It doesn't add a whole lot of thickness to the phone. Um, the, uh, and it, it does fit three cards in quite well. And, and, and is, you know, is nice. Uh, this one is just a card carrying case in the past. I've used cases that also have wallet type, like, like fold over, type cases. Um, and I like those two, you know, it, it's just personal preference. Those are n- sort of naturally a little bit thicker. I'm a real big fan of the Senna cases, the leather uh, wallet cases, the heritage wallet book is the fold over case that I used for a long time. And then the Lugano wallet is sort of like uh, the spec one in that it's uh, it, the cards go on the back of it, but it's got like three little leather pouches that you, you tuck your cards into. And it, it's really, really nice. So, so there's the spec one and then there's the, the center ones that I really like, but to be brutally honest, um, you know, you got to just go and check all these out, um, and find what you want. I, I will tell you this, you know, the center cases, the leather ones are fantastic. They're really well protective, uh, and they're also expensive because you're buying real leather. You can find fake leather cases, uh, all over Amazon for like 10 bucks. And you might be fine with those. They might serve your needs perfectly. Just be aware that a lot of those do not spend a whole lot of time worrying about actual protective elements and are more 
about tactile feel and functionality, you know, adding the fold over wallet and this sort of thing. But just know that, you know, if you drop that phone from whatever, you know, six feet up, uh, you might not be happy about the results in a cheap $10 case versus a case that, you know, somebody spent some time to engineer it the right way and spec and, and Senna for me have both been fantastic in that regard. So that's what I share. How about you, John? Any, any thoughts on this? I, I put my uh, cards in a leather trifold, like a caveman, right. <laughs> like, like an animal, <laughs> like an animal. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. No, I have all my, all my cards on, uh, on my phone now, except one, mm. oddly enough, one of them. Um, I try to register it and it says, nope, they, right. they don't, they don't want to support it. Yeah. They're not on board with Apple pay yet. Yeah. How well, it's often, weird because how often are you able well, no, it's, to use it's, Apple it's, pay? Oh, quite often. Well, That's no, the good. thing is it's, it's a, it's a different type of account, but I have a, another card from the same bank and it works Yep. They just for whatever reason, choose not to do it on a, yeah, my Citibank personal card works fine with Apple pay. My Citibank business cards are not yet supported. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I, I think it's just, you know, various systems and deals. That no, I like it. I, I, I try using it whenever I can. Sometimes the cashier is like kind of surprised that it actually works. That's awesome. They're like, I don't know if I'm like, no, no, there, there's a little, there's a little, RF symbol on your terminal. So yeah, we can, we can make this work. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oddly enough, I had it work at a terminal that did not have an RF symbol on it. Really? Like, do you guys, I'm like, well, that's weird because yeah, I mean, it had, it had a slot. So the thing is now everybody's getting updates to their cards or you probably are, or at least I did now is finally now all of my credit cards have the, the little EMV chip in them. Right. Right. Yeah. My last one, they said, yeah, we're going to send you uh, you know, we're going to change some info, you know, tough tough for you yeah right wait no i didn't ask for this no they changed the expiration date and the the security code and i'm like wait i didn't ask you to do that stop yeah (laughs) that's what they do that's right hey so you know while we're talking about cases here i figured i should put my my money where my mouth is and we should talk about um uh apple care right so my son came home the other day it's important to know he's he's got the iphone 6 that was handed down from my wife um he had it in a tech 21 case, uh, which theoretically is, is good. Uh, they're the ones that have the orange stuff that they're happy to put around their thumb and whack it with a hammer. Right. So he had it in the tech 21 case and had a glass shield. And I don't know the brand of the glass shield. So I'm not even going to guess at that uh, over the screen. And it hit a corner. I think the case peeled back. Um, the glass shield shattered, which, it's just all he thought had happened. And I'm like, Oh dude, you're, you know, your, your glass shield shattered. And he's like, yeah. And that happens sometimes. I was like, it's fine. You know, so we'll take it off. The entire screen is shattered. So we have an appointment to go to the genius bar tomorrow. I'm going to pick him up after school and we'll, we'll take him down there and, and get it replaced. So here's the thing, right? I don't have Apple care plus on this. Um, I explained why in a recent episode, uh, you know, that I, I'm, because I have four phones going, it's actually the law of averages. And my history says it's cheaper for me to be self-insured, but there's a risk, right? And so here it is, but it's going to cost 109 bucks. Assuming that all that's wrong with it is that the screen is shattered and, and it, the phone is otherwise functional. In fact, it's fully functional with the, with the shattered screen. Um, it's just, you know, non-optimal. So it would be 109 bucks to replace this. 
because we don't have Apple Care Plus on that device. If we had Apple Care Plus on that device, we would have paid 99 bucks to have Apple Care Plus. And then instead of paying 109 tomorrow, we would pay 79. So still we're out ahead. Now, his phone, the only part of his phone that was damaged uh, was the screen, right? So assuming when we get there, they agree with that and that's what fixes it, then, you know, we're, we're still ahead of the game. I also realized that that $79 incident fee would cover far more if we had Apple Care Plus and if that damage were, were um, affected on the device. But uh, I'll, I'll let you folks know how it goes, but I figured I'd, I'd just share that little tidbit. So there we are. I get to go put my money where, where my mouth is. So, Well, it's a good tidbit. And since you started it, I think I'm going to finish it because I know why you brought up that tidbit. I brought it up because I'm going to the store tomorrow. <laughs> there's well, there's also no ulterior because, well, motive. Yeah. Well, no, the other thing is we, we did have um, uh, a listener write in and uh, wasn't entirely pleased, I think, with how I justified whether I should get Apple Care or not. Well, you, yeah, you, you, yeah, yeah. I, I, and I, I don't disagree with him that, yeah. I mean, his, his, his complaint was what? that your justification was it's never happened to me, so it's not going to. Yeah. And I want to qualify that. Okay. So that should not be, uh, so I will agree. What was pointed out is that shouldn't be the only thing that you use to decide whether to ensure, I would say pretty much anything, right? Co- correct. Not <laughs> yes. just Apple care. That's right. Yes. And, and to me, the anticipated cost of whatever damage historically. So, but, but, so I will say that you should use your history with a certain class of device to determine whether it's worth it for you right. to ensure it. Yeah, I wouldn't say use your history as an indicator of whether it's ever happened or not. But the frequency uh, that your history shows is relevant, right? If you're someone who breaks your phone four times a year, then insurance starts to make sense. I think that's exactly where you're going with this, right, John? You know, but if you're someone who breaks your phone once every three years, well, okay. And the thing is, I've never damaged a phone to the point where it was not usable. So I'm considering that. And the thing is, if there was any damage that I would suffer, the only type of damage I could imagine would be a broken screen, which I've looked and the kits to fix this yourself. I also am a fix it yourself type of guy when I can um, are like 80 bucks. Yeah. And that is less than the insurance. So if whatever you think is going to happen to the thing you're going to insure, it costs less than the insurance. Then I would, you know, say uh, buying the insurance probably doesn't make sense for you. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. I, I've looked at, at the at the repair costs on the uh, on the iPhone six. I'm not convinced that it would in the end be a whole lot cheaper than Apple's hundred and nine bucks um, because you've got to buy the whole digitizer and everything. Oh, no, just replace. No, I found. Screen. Yeah, I found the, the, the one place that I found I'll use them as a benchmark is yeah. um, iRescue and their various uh, spinoffs there. But they have both, you know, a service where you can mail it in or right. they'll you know send you a kit so you can do it yourself. Yeah. So, um. Yeah, for that type of repair, I think their charge was yeah, like a hundred something. Yeah. So um. Yeah, I asked I, you know uh, Shannon Jean, uh, who's my partner. I should tell you folks. In fact, I'm I'm going to tell you folks about two other podcasts that I do. But he he was my partner with Deal Brothers and Deals on the Web years ago. But he was the one that started. Uh, he co-founded Mac Rescue, which also became iRescue, and then he sold that off and now has a business called Tech Restore. And I actually I was about to record a show that I do called the Small Business Show with him. Uh, and asked him, you know, should I send this to you to have it done or should I go to the Apple store? He's like, dude, go to the Apple store. <laughs> it's, it's better, you know, and, and, 
Um, and he's right. He's like, yeah, it, it doesn't, you know, Apple has changed this whole market. And he's like, we should rant about that at some point because they make it difficult for third parties to compete in that way. Um, so, but yeah, so I do two other podcasts and we'll get into cool stuff found when, when we finish talking about this small business show with Shannon Jean, where we, uh, talk about and interview. I mean, we talk about our own experiences, but we also uh, do a lot of interviews where we bring in folks that are running their own businesses, either that have started, you know, and just recently or folks that have been doing it for a long time. And, and these are people that are just running businesses and earning money and, you know, providing for themselves and, and in many cases, their families and their employees, families and that sort of thing. Uh, and the struggles and, and not just the struggles, but the, the, you know, the tips and tricks that everybody's learned uh, to go through. So I, I, well, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I, I, uh, if you're interested in that sort of thing, I'd really encourage you to check it out. And then the other podcast I started this year is called Gig Gab. I do that with Paul Kent. It's the podcast for working musicians. It's uh, the two of us. We are both working musicians. We play pretty much every week. And uh, certainly we record every week and talk about not only, you know, experiences that we've had at, at gigs, but also bringing in guests that uh, that do that also gig and talk about stuff. And so gear and tips and song selection and all of that great stuff goes into to that show. So if you're interested in that, I would love to uh, to have you. That's at giggabpodcast.com. And of course, both of those shows you can find on the, on iTunes. The small business show is at businessshow.co. So we'll put those in the thing. Couldn't, uh, couldn't help but give myself my own plug. So thank you for your indulgence on that. And now it's time to do some cool stuff found. We'll start with Steve. Steve actually has three things that we're going to talk about. One of them is uh, from a company called Blue Lounge that we've talked about before. And it's a product called the Key. The K-I-I is how we pronounce this. Uh, it's a tiny, tiny little USB, uh, USB-A, I guess I would call it, the you know USB port on most uh, computers, except for the new MacBook, uh, to Lightning adapter. But it's so small, it fits uh, on your keychain. It's just a tiny little thing, but it, it allows you to plug in anything with lightning, presumably your iPhone, and it's like 40 bucks. So we'll, uh, we'll put that in the show notes. And then number two from Steve is a wallet uh, called the Basics Wallet. So, John, this might be something for you and actually for me, too. I still mm -hmm. keep some stuff in my wallet. I, uh, you know, I have to keep cash and, and my, the rest of my card somewhere. But this is a basic. It's called the Basics Wallet. And... Uh, he says about it, uh, he took a, a few minutes to watch the video. It's this, it's this weird uh, wallet that's, that's really just a tiny little piece of fabric that keeps everything together and yet keeps it really kind of flat and thin. So uh, Steve says he likes it. And it's a very small footprint. So we'll put that in the show notes. And then lastly from Steve, he asked a question, but... Um, I want to talk about it a little bit. He said um, he was asking about iSCSI and whether, um, well, here's this thing. SCSI was, and I guess still is, although I can't imagine anybody still uses it, was a way of connecting storage devices to your, to your computer, right? It was an interface. Yeah, what decade? What decade are we in? Well, that's the thing, right? And I'd always ignored this thing called iSCSI. 
Um, because in SCSI was this, like I said, you connected peripherals and there were a zillion different interfaces and pins and terminators. And it was a disaster. And, you know, USB and Firewire make this so much better and Thunderbolt, you know, make it really, really great. But there is this thing called iSCSI. And he said, I was thinking of using this with my virtual box, um, you know, virtual machines. And I'm like, okay, I got to learn more about iSCSI. If you have a NAS drive, like a Synology, right, you can set up an iSCSI store, sort of like a partition. But here's what happens. You connect to it directly from your Mac. It's not treated like a network share. It doesn't use AFP. It uses iSCSI to talk to it. And it's a direct line to a piece of the storage, a chunk of the storage on your NAS and it's treated like local storage. So there's a lot of people that actually use it for their time machine backups because when time machines connected locally, it stores the data just out on a partition, right? That the, that the computer controls and formats and all of that stuff. When it's stored over a network, it creates a disk image and it's those disk images that really start to have problems, right? Because they've got a, you know, this whole overhead and they can get corrupted and all of that stuff. Well, iSCSI lets you store in its native format. So it's, you know, Time Machine doesn't treat it as a disk image. It treats it as a locally attached drive, even though it's over the network. So there's going to be more to do with iSCSI. I just started looking at this, but I think there's a, there's a valuable thing for, for folks that have, you know, a NAS drive that would support this stuff. Um, and I think most of them will that, that, you know, there's, there's, there's a benefit here. So we're going to start messing with that. So thank you, Steve, for, for heading us down that path. It's good stuff. I like it. I get it. Yeah. No, I yeah. haven't done anything with this either. Like you, I, I had worked with, with SCSI in that. Yeah. So I see what they're doing. So yeah. it's SCSI, but it's not, it's SCSI, but it's sending it over a TCP IP connection instead of a, scuzzy bus correct that caused all sorts of grief which uh, as you pointed out the whole <laughs> i still remember oh what fun setting the id to the same thing as something right. else and then trying to figure out why nothing's working and the terminating resistors Ugh. yeah but i scuzzy i guess the best way that i can i can state it is you're just giving your mac access to raw storage capacity on yeah it's you know, like a direct it's direct connect it's like it's, direct connect yeah and then it's up to the Mac but to it's format kind of it. it's not but because it's, it's stored right. over TCP IP. Correct. Correct. Yeah, and people say that, you know, when, even when your network gets disconnected in the midst of a time machine backup, it's far more likely to survive um, if you're doing it over iSCSI than it is over, you know, the whole network disk image thing because the disk image gets corrupted and all this stuff. So, I, I'm, right, I'm, right. yeah, I, right. As soon as I started reading it, I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. You know, like my mind started to open. It's like, I like this. This is the kind this is why we do this show. Hopefully you folks have these revelations every now and then, just like we do. So, well, I'm going to, I'm going to mess more with this, John. It sounds like you, it sounds like the, the, the bug has been planted for you too. I like that. That's good. I want to see if my Synology will do it. It will definitely. Yeah. It's in, um, on the Synology, go into storage manager and, um, oh, I can't think of it, but it's in storage manager. You can create, I think it's one of the lists on the left. It's just create an iSCSI store. It's a little weird. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I think I saw it once and I'm like, what's this? Yeah. yeah what's this? Let me I'm ignore it. Yeah. It's like anything else in the Synology. It does everything that you can't possibly do it all. You don't, you know, it's like word Microsoft word was when we, you know, when we first got it, it was like, uh, okay, but I'm only going to use these four features. Is that okay? Yep. Yeah. All right. Good. Chris uh, has an excellent suggestion on the new Apple TV. One of the coolest things is the aerial screensaver. This downloads these beautifully like helicopter and drone filmed active scenes of landmark cities. You know, San Francisco, of course, is one. London's another. Uh, I think I saw. I don't know. I've seen all kinds of different cities come up on this and they're gorgeous. And Chris found a uh, link to a GitHub store where someone made a screensaver for the Mac uh, that uh, that pulls these same aerial screensavers direct uh, direct from Apple. So we will put that in the show notes as well, because why wouldn't we? Right. Good stuff. All right. Um, you should check this out, John. Th- this this will this will whet your appetite. So it's it's worth it's worth taking a look. Uh, let's see. Curtis. Where is uh, where's Curtis here? Well, I guess it was both Curtis and Alex wrote in about this piece of software called Peak Hour. Uh, Peak Hour is, uh, I guess I'll, uh, Curtis explains it well. He says, uh, uh, where is it? Comcast, he's a Comcast customer and he's worried about his data usage because he's in an area where he has a cap. And he says, Comcast provides a tool for monitoring my usage. Um, it used to provide more granular data, i.e. daily stats. Now it doesn't. But I found a great app that does give me all the data usage I could possibly want. And it's called Peak Hour at peakhourapp.com. They're up to version three. Alex talked about this on our Facebook group. And it allows you to monitor your individual Macs with great granularity. So uh, so thanks to both Curtis and, uh, and Alex for reporting this to us. Awesome, awesome stuff. Have you checked out peak hour yet, John? I don't think you're on a bandwidth limited connection, right? So. No, that's uh, one of the things I like so far about my uh, cable. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not either. I mean, I'm technically am on a bandwidth limited connection, but in most areas of the U S Comcast has uh, suspended their bandwidth limits, but they, they are experimenting with them in various areas before they figure out what they want to roll out nationwide. So. Speaking of data, uh, Jeff Gamut here at, uh, at Mac Observer recommended something called trip mode to me. Now, I've always done uh, what, whatever trip mode does, I've, I've done um, with little snitch. And that is when I travel and I connect to my, uh, I tether to my iPhone, I don't want it to use all my bandwidth, right? So I don't want things like Dropbox to be syncing. I don't want things, you know, I don't need photos doing all of its cloud stuff in the background. I don't need any of that to happen. And I'd always use little snitch to manage this. Uh, it, in fact, it's the only thing I use little snitch for little snitch is only on my laptop. And I, and I have a couple of profiles that are like for when I travel. So it's not trying to do backups when I connect to my Wi-Fi on my, on my phone. Um, Trip mode makes this a lot easier. And, 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 and I really feel like the folks at, at um, oh, objective software, I guess, is, or objective development that make little snitch are missing the boat here. But, uh, but trip mode takes that ship and sails with it. So they do exactly that. They let you decide what apps are allowed to access the internet and what apps are not. 
when you turn it on and it's that simple. You just turn it on and it completely stops everything except those things that you say, yeah, these things are cool. You know, and so you can turn on like Safari and maybe Skype because you want to, you know, Slack if you want to message people or messages and FaceTime, right? I mean, you can choose not to answer a FaceTime call, but it's nice to get your messages in. It's nice to get your email in and out, but you don't need your backup software running. You don't need, you know, iCloud photos running and all of that stuff. So total savior for your mobile data bill. You got to check it out. Um, Tripmode.ch just stops your Mac from doing any of that stuff. I will say it's also handy to use something like this when you're in a hotel room, because a lot of times you're on, you're not on a metered connection, but you are on a uh, bandwidth limited connection, right? So, you know, if you're trying to say, watch a video on the New York times website, but instead your Mac's downloading all the photos, all your photos from the day, you're not going to be able to, you know, do both of those things. And so it's nice to, to be able to control some of that too. And trip mode uh, seems like it would totally solve that. I got, uh, I got four more. I feel like John that we can go through here. Number one, and they're all about the terminal. So it should go, well, I guess relatively quickly. Uh, Allison Sheridan, uh, as part of her Nozilla cast show did a segment with Bart Bouchot's called taming the terminal. Uh, where he basically, you know, she is the interviewer and, uh, and Bart is the interviewee. He taught her, you know, and, and by proxy, of course, all the the listeners about how to use the terminal and it was segmented up, uh, but it was inside each of these episodes, uh, that was, you know, other stuff and taming the terminal is all of those podcasts in a series, but separated out Allison's uh, Allison and her husband, Steve broke these apart, made it its own podcast and makes it really easy to just go through and learn all this stuff. It's absolutely fantastic. So you've got to check that out for sure. It's, you know, it's, it's an excellent reference. Speaking of references, uh, Alex, uh, found a great ref terminal reference that he posted to our Facebook group. So we will put that uh, in the show notes here as well. It's at uh, it's a GitHub OS 10 command line reference. So we'll put that in the, uh, we'll put that in the show notes too. Great stuff. I love, I love these little tips. It's uh, it's how it's supposed to work when we get together and, and do all this stuff. So good stuff. Thank you, Alex. Along those same lines, Alex found um, a, st- a Stack Exchange article about terminal marks. Uh, and this is an interesting thing. I'm not, I'm not even sure I understand it, but it, it sure seems you can have it. Um, well, you can have it mark different lines in the terminal when you're moving through things to make it easier to see stuff, I guess when you're scrolling back, uh, have you messed around and you and and, and the terminal knows when you've marked something. So you can just jump to different marks. Uh, almost like, I guess it's like bookmarks and you can have it, uh, automatically mark when you hit a prompt so that all the data between the two prompts is you can, is easily skippable. Uh, and then, and then you can manually set marks so you can jump all around in the terminal. So this is, it's like, you know, bookmarks, both manually and, and automated inside the, uh, inside the terminal. So it's cool stuff. The terminal does more than you think it would. And then 
it can do even more. Uh, listener John mentioned something called the fish shell. F I S H is, uh, is what it is. And you can install it. I think you can install it through uh, homebrew and, and various other things. But, uh, the, uh, the fish shell is, uh, is it's a replacement shell. It's at fishshell.com and you can read all about it, but it's a replacement shell for, uh, for bash, which is the kind of the main shell on the terminal and allows you to do all kinds of things. It's got auto suggest for, you don't even have to, it'll complete commands for you based on your history. So a uh, very handy thing to have. It's got some scripting uh, in it. It has man page completions, all sorts of colors. You can configure uh, a web uh, configurations and stuff. It's, it's actually very, very cool. So check it out. Uh, fishshell.com is the place to look. And then uh, if you have homebrew installed, it's as simple as typing brew install fish. And then you've got it installed. You're good to go. You can run it. I see it. I'm looking now with think, which is yeah. my uh, yep. package manager. And it describes fish as a friendly interactive shell. Ah, oh, hence fish F I friendly interactive. Right. Really? Okay. F I S H. Is that, I mean, it's, is that right? Or am I, am I making that up? No, you're right. Okay. F I S. Hey, look at that. See how I am. That's why they call it fish. Yeah. It's not a fish shake. We like fish shakes too, but maybe because, we like fish. Yeah. Because when, when you said it, I thought fish as in a fish. And it's not a fish. Yeah. One would think it is. So I'm installing fish right fish. now on this uh, on this computer. Like, while I'm talking to you, it's being installed. So. I wouldn't risk that. <clears throat> you uh, know what I will risk, Dave, is telling people where they can write us. Yeah. We already mentioned it once, but I have to mention it again in case you missed it the first time. If oh, you want to write us with questions, dude, this comments. this is fantastic. Oh, and tell us about fantastic things like Dave, who, who, uh, you're right there. Yeah. Um, but you can write us, um, once you've downloaded fish and used it for a while, you can write us at feedback at MackieGap.com. That's absolutely right, folks. Uh, and we would love to hear from you. We, we, this show is made well by you, frankly, and we, sure we assemble it. We come and and we're the focal point of it. Uh, or at least we're the, the point through which it focuses. Uh, uh, but you're the focal point. Your your questions are what create this. Your cool stuff found is is what we share. We just uh, we just do our best to be the stewards of the role mm-hmm. that we uh, the, the role that we play as the, the stewards of the information. So thank you. Yeah, send us everything. That's right, everybody. It, is that right? Okay. It is it. You're right, Dave, in that it's all it's all their fault. It's all your fault, folks. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, okay. 206-666-GEEK is the phone number that you can call anytime you want. John Geek is? 4335. And, uh, we promise that when the phone answers, no one will say, hello, is Mr. Chuckles there? We promise that. I don't know why we promise that, but... (laughs) That's the one thing we promise when you call the phone number. What else do we have, John? Facebook. Um, 
We mentioned, yeah. a couple, we mentioned a couple of things that originated in our Facebook group. Highly encourage you to join. MacGeekUp.com slash Facebook is the easiest way to, to, to be brought there. You'll, uh, you can ask to join and, and any one of, actually anybody I believe that's uh-huh. in the group can, can, uh, can approve yeah. you. But it's a public group. You can see it. Um, mm-hmm. And in order to post, you just need approval. But usually happens yeah. within about an hour or less. We, we try. It's off, it's off the hook, yo. It's off the charts. <laughs> That's right. That too. That too. Oh, uh, I think that's it, John. I mean, I, I really feel like, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've outdone ourselves this time. I want to thank uh, all of you for listening, all of you for contributing all your great stuff. I want to thank Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com for all the bandwidth that it takes to get this show from us to you. I want to thank the folks in our podcast marketplace, all the advertisers that, uh, that help us keep things going here as well uh bombic software at bombic.com slash mgg that's where you can uh, save 10 percent on carbon copy cloner barebones software at barebones.com where you can get bb edit gazelle.com where you can sell uh all your stuff lynda.com lynda.com slash mgg for 10 free days Smile at smilesoftware.com slash geek. They've always got the latest deals for you there. Squarespace.com slash MGG, where you can build your own website just like I did. Otherworld Computing, MaxSales.com. Great stuff. And, of course, our friends at Crucial at Crucial.com. John, you started this. It's your turn to end it. What do you have to say? (laughs) I'm going to end it, pal. You know how I'm going to end it? How's that? By telling... Everybody, something very important, and that is oh, don't get 